Who likes bread? Come on. I think it's one of the best things ever, especially when it's just out of the oven, freshly baked. You can smell delicious, soft, fluffy. Uh, some sermons are a bit like that, soft and fluffy. This is not one of them. One of the saddest things I've seen in my 26 or so years of being a Christian is when someone who is, seems to be an avid follower of Jesus Christ, a strong member of church, enthusiastic and involved, uh, you know, seemingly on fire for Jesus, uh, walks away and now rejects him out of hand. Uh, I've seen it several times over the years. Perhaps you've seen that kind of thing too. I, I know some of you have seen that. Uh, people walk away. Sometimes it's a slow drift of lifestyle decisions and decision, uh, and, and which have crept in and they've taken over, just like Jesus warned about the thorns among the good plants and, and the thorns have choked out the word of God. Hobbies, interests, adventures overtake everything else and things like devotions and church uh, all take a back seat until one day they wake up and Jesus means nothing to them anymore. But then there's those who've made deliberate decisions to go against what God has to say. They know what he has to say, but they've entertained their sin, they've, they've justified it even, they oh, doesn't really care about that stuff, does he? But in the end, they can no longer live out the lie, and so they come to some amazing repentance, or many more walk away from Jesus because of adultery, because of gambling, because of addiction, marrying outside the faith. Shady dealing. Uh, and in the end, they indulge themselves and they turn their back on Jesus. But then there's been a couple of times when I've witnessed people walk away from Jesus because they've heard him say something particular on some issue and they found it so confronting, so difficult, that they just could not accept it, be it a, a doctrine or maybe a challenge to their lives, or, or maybe some critique of the world. They heard what Jesus had to say, but they refused to believe him on it, and so in the end they rejected him. Uh, the classic example in the Bible is uh, the rich young ruler. Uh, comes up to Jesus says, I, I want eternal life. I know you can give it to me. Uh, just explain it to me, please. Jesus says, okay, go sell everything, give it to the poor, then come follow me. And he went... Um, no. <laughs> in fact, he went away miserable. He, he knew he was walking away from eternal life. Uh, I think of a, a lady at a previous church who, who came to see me after having read Matthew 10, and she said, can Jesus really be serious here? You know, she read the verse to me, anyone who loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. He's not worthy of the kingdom. And she said, I, I'm not going to love anyone more than my children. And if Jesus thinks I can love him more than my kids, well, he can get nicked. And I said, well, he's saying that, isn't he? And she said, well, Jesus can get nicked. And she walked out, destroyed her family in the end, uh, destroyed, you know, hurt many people. So the question for you today is, what would Jesus have to say to you to make you reject him out of hand like that? What would Jesus have to put his finger on some issue or some point in your life that you would just outright walk away? 
Because in today's passage, a vast crowd of people are travelling with Jesus. They call themselves disciples. They're hanging off his every word. They're seeing the wonderful things he does. They're experiencing the joys of, of being part of the crowd around him. And yet by the end of the chapter, having heard something particular, Jesus has to say, all but 12 will walk away and will have no part in him from here on. And even one of them secretly wants to go. <laughs> Jesus' words are so challenging, so incisive, so stark, so offensive to them that they cannot, they will not stick around. And I wonder whether those same words are going to divide this crowd today. They certainly divide the community around us. And yet what's even more shocking and saddening than their response is the fact that it was over the one of the most wonderful incredible, soul-satisfying, heart-gripping and awesome statements that Jesus ever made about himself and reality which will change your life, in fact, which will give you life. And they said, no thanks, we won't believe that, we don't want you. Now, the situation we read revolves around two miracles. Uh, where did it all take place? Well, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, up in the north of Israel, uh, which went by several names over the years. Uh, currently was being called the Sea of Tiberias, uh, named after the new Caesar in Rome because you know what politicians are like. And at the start of the chapter, Jesus crossed over to the far side of uh, what's really a large lake. It's like 13 miles across, 21 miles long. Uh, and he's on the far side in pagan territory, non-Israelite territory. But such was his popularity that the crowds of disciples are willing to follow on foot for a couple of days' walk to be there with him and to hang off his words. When does it happen? Well, verse 4, just before the Passover feast which turns out is going to be a bit significant. Remember the Passover? The Passover was, was an annual Jewish holiday and festival in celebration of the end of their slavery, their slavery in Egypt. When, when Moses, at God's command, had led the people out, there had been plagues and all kinds of things, and then the angel of death had passed over the land, killing all the firstborn sons of Egypt. But you were safe if you'd painted the, lamb of, uh, the blood of a lamb, not the lamb of blood, the blood of a lamb on your doorpost, and the angel of death passed over your house and didn't kill anyone inside and Pharaoh's son died and all the Egyptian boys died and he said, right, you can go. I'm sick of you, get out. And uh, they celebrated every year the freedom and, and they were brought into the promised land that they now occupied and things happened in the desert. They were fed miraculously uh, loaves of bread and manna from heaven and they feasted in celebration and looked forward to the time when Moses' own prophecy would be fulfilled. The prophecy that he made in Deuteronomy chapter 18 in which God says, I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their fellow Israelites and I, God, will put my words in his mouth. He will tell them everything that I command him. I myself will call everyone to account who does not listen to my words that this prophet speaks in my name. A prophet like Moses is coming. And so for 1,500 years they had waited for this prophet like Moses to come. And on this particular day, right before this particular Passover, something convinces them that they've found him. What's the thing? Well, Jesus miraculously feeds the lot of them, just like Moses did in the wilderness. It's the only miracle of Jesus which is recounted in all four of the Gospels 
Uh, do you remember Jesus said to his closest followers, you know, how about, you know, there's a whole few thousand of them, you, you go feed them and they go, well, you can't expect us to pay for that. They'll take six months' wages to buy enough food so they can have one little nibble each. You know, we're not, we haven't got that kind of money. Uh, and we've been following you around. We lost our jobs coming with you. But we can't do it. But Andrew goes, oh, well, hang on, there's this little boy. He's got the two little fish, two sardines, and five little bread rolls. And Jesus says, well, right, lads, just start handing them out. And they do, and suddenly everyone's miraculously and amply fed with plenty of leftover, 12 basketfuls they pick up at the end. And so here's the first sign, a wonderful sign, fresh bread. Think of the smell, you know, barely out of barely nothing. I mean, you think bread fresh out of your oven's good. Think about bread that's come fresh into existence. Oh, oh yeah, how good that be? And, and it's not hard to see why the crowds are amazed. And yet if we've been following John's Gospel carefully, we'd realise that there's a warning in verse 2 that these are not people that we should trust. Have a look, verse 2. 6 verse 2. A great crowd followed him because they saw the signs he had performed by healing the sick. But if you remember earlier in chapter 2 and verse 23, there's this key little passage which warns us about people like that. 2 verse 23. Now while he was at Jerusalem for the Passover feast, the one the year before, the many people saw the miraculous signs that he was doing and believed in his name. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them, for he knew all men. He did not need man's testimony about a man, for he knew what was in a man. Believing in the miraculous signs is not true belief. Not, you know, obviously believe they happen because they happen, but believing because of them is not true belief. And several times we've been introduced to people who have believed because of the miracles but turn out not to be real believers. Nicodemus in chapter 3 the people at the end of chapter 4 who Jesus challenges. Unless you people see miraculous signs and wonders, you'll never believe. And now here's a group at a different Passover who followed Jesus because of miraculous signs and so they're not to be trusted. Now there's a lot of details we could cover, but the point John wants to make is in verses 14 and 15. Seeing this great miracle, they said, this must be the prophet. This is the one Moses prophesied about. And having concluded that he was the prophet, they said to each other, well, let's make him the king. They're in slavery in Egypt. We're in slavery to Romans. Let's get him to be the king. He'll lead us. He's the new Moses. He's the prophet. And so Jesus, well, Jesus hid because this was not his time and this was not his way and these were not going to be his people. The second sign is the sign of the storm and Jesus walking on the water. Uh, the twelve, they take the boat that night and leave Jesus with the crowd. But in the middle of the night, there's a storm and the disciples are four miles out to sea. They're really struggling. Uh, and they look out and there's Jesus walking by on the tops of the waves. Uh, and they're freaked out. They're terrified. Uh, but in the morning, the crowd wake up. They realise only one boat left last night and Jesus wasn't on it, but he's not here uh, then they get word that Jesus is back in Capernaum all the way on the other side, 13 miles away or a you 40-mile know, walk. And so they make tracks real quick. They find Jesus a day or so later. They know something strange has happened. You know, Things don't add up. Teleportation 
equipment has not been invented yet. It's not Star Trek era. In fact, it's still not. <laughs> and they find him and they ask, Rabbi, when did you get here? How did this happen? You were with us just last night and yet... And so that's the setting for a huge argument that's about to happen, which is going to turn most of the 5,000 off for good. And it all revolves around the subject of bread. There you go. And you think, well, what could he possibly say about bread that was going to be so terrible? I mean, bread's a wonderful thing. Uh, how it could be so terrible that they'd walk away and reject him, that they go from saying, here is the prophet, let's make him the king, to see you later, we want no part of you. What could turn them off so quickly? Well, let's find out. Verse 25, they ask him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus answered, I tell you the truth, you're looking for me not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate the loaves and had your fill. Bit of a slap in the face, really, isn't it? Do not work for food that spoils, but for food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, for on him God the Father has placed his seal of approval. Ouch! You know, first thing he does, question their motives. Right? You know, you don't really want to be You're only looking for me because you had a free lunch and you think you might get a few more if you hang around. But instead of worrying about your stomachs, you should be worried about your eternal destiny. You're working for the wrong food, guys. You're working for food that perishes. You need to be working for food that endures to eternal life. Well, that stumps them. And so verse 28, so they asked him, well, then, okay, what must we do? to do the works that God requires. I mean, we know how to work for normal bread, but how do you work for bread that lasts to eternal life? That doesn't make sense. Jesus answered, the work of God is this. Okay, You want to know how to work for bread that lasts into eternal life? The work of God is this, to believe in the one he sent. You don't have to do much, you've just got to believe him. Doesn't seem so hard. All right then. But just before we do believe you, Jesus, yeah, we, we're kind of convinced that you're the prophet. Um, if you really are who we think you are and who you say you are and that you can deliver, we want you to prove it to us. Uh, we need a little bit more evidence to convince us. And so verse 30, they asked him, What miraculous sign then will you give that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our forefathers, they ate manna in the desert, as it's written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Now, does that strike you as surprising? I mean, I read them and you just go, what? What? And here's the problem. They've seen plenty of miraculous signs. In fact, they've been following because of the miraculous signs. And he's just done a spectacular miracle, fed all 5,000 of them from nothing, and they say, do a miracle for us and then we might believe you. And not only that, he's just walked on water, which in Australian lingo is synonymous with thinking of God. That's what you say about you know, Malcolm Turnbull or Bill Shorten. You know, when they get too arrogant, they think they can walk on water. Jesus has done these incredible miracles. They've witnessed them all. They've been following him because of it. And they go, well, just give us a sign. In fact, give us some more bread. Because the Israelites, they, they ate lots of bread. <laughs> And so Jesus pushes back, verse 32. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, it's not Moses who's given you bread from heaven. It wasn't Moses never delivered any of it. It is my Father who gives you the bread, the true bread from heaven. 
For the bread of God is the bread that comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they think, ooh, better bread than the matter. Cool. So they said, from now on, give us his bread. And here's the crunch. Then Jesus declared, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me will never go hungry. Whoever believes in me will never be thirsty. But as I told you, you have seen me and you still do not believe. All those the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I'll never drive away. For I've come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I shall lose none of those who he has given me, but raise them up at the last day. For my Father's will is that everyone who looks to the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I'll raise them up at the last day. Well, this, the Jews began to grumble about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? You know, they live up in Nazareth there. How can he now say, I came down from heaven? Whoa, 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 whoa. Hold your horses, Jesus. Yeah, just back up a bit there, buddy. What do you mean? You're the true bread from heaven. Are you saying you can satisfy us for eternity? That's a bit rich, isn't it? And what do you mean we just can't come any time we want to come? I mean, we pick God. You know, we, what do you mean God has to bring us to you before we're able to come? You can't be serious, mate. <laughs> and what do you mean you've come from God? You, you think you're in heaven and then you pop down to earth? <laughs> you really think you're from there and from God? And you're a dreaming, buddy, if you think... You, personally, can get us through Judgment Day. I mean, who do you think you are? You're getting a bit too big for your boots, Sonny Jim. But what does their grumbling get them? Does Jesus go, oh, you're right, that was a bit strong. You know, I'll just back down now. <laughs> yeah, good point, guys. No, verse 43. Stop grumbling among yourself, Jesus answered. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise them up at the last day. It's written in the prophets. They will all be taught by God. Everyone has heard the, who has heard the Father and learned from him comes to me. No one has seen the Father except the one who is from God. Only he has seen the Father. I tell you the truth, the one who believes has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate manna in the wilderness. You know what happened? They died. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I give for the life of the world. Each time they complain, he just repeats it and does it with even more vigour and even sharper. <laughs> yeah. Do you hate arguing with people like that? You know, kind of thing? They just, no, you're wrong. <laughs> You cannot have the bread of life except the Father draws you. And you cannot come to me unless the Father draws you. And this bread I'm offering, it's far better than the manna in the desert because all who ate that bread, they died. Um, but you eat this bread I give you, you live forever. Indeed, you must, you must eat my flesh to get that life. <laughs> Hang on, what kind of cannibalism is this religion now? And that really tips them over the edge. Verse 52, then the Jews began to argue sharply among themselves, how can this man 
give us his flesh to eat. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I'll raise them up at the last day. I mean, he's gone from just eating him to now drinking his blood. It's gross. <laughs> For my flesh is the real food and my blood is the real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them, just as the living Father sent me and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Your ancestors ate manna and died. But whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. He said this while teaching in the synagogue in Capernaum. You know, if this was on Facebook, what would he be called? He'd be a troll, right? You know, someone who's just spoiling for a fight, who's just whacking stuff out there, looking for an argument. But he's not being a troll. They just misunderstand. They're in the wrong. You must eat me and you must drink me. And unless you do, you have no part of me. You get it? Life comes from me. You're after the wrong bread. If you want the kind of stuff that Moses gave, they ate and they died. But you eat me, you'll live forever. Well, on hearing that, many of the disciples said, this is a hard teaching. Who can accept it? And aware that his disciples were grumbling about this, Jesus said to them, does this offend you? Then what if you see the Son of Man ascend to where he was before? If he goes back to heaven, you know, the Spirit gives life, the flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you, they are full of the Spirit and life. Yet there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus had known from the beginning which of them did not believe and who would betray him. He went on to say, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless the Father has enabled him. From this time, many of his disciples turned back and they no longer followed him. I'm wondering why. Why would Jesus go so hard at them? I mean, sure, they're his friends, right? They've been following around. They're his groupies. Why? Why is he so hard? Why is he? It's almost like he's trying to drive them away. And I think it's because he doesn't want clingers on. He doesn't want people there just for entertainment who you know, just want the benefits but not the reality. He has come into the world to save people from hell. That, that is what he's here for. He's not here to entertain people. He's not here to make people feel good necessarily, although knowing him does is a good thing, right, and changes your life around. You have joy and peace. But he's not here to entertain. Jesus is here to save you from hell and to bring you to God and reconnect you for eternity with the one who made you. <laughs> Do you think Jesus was surprised that they reacted so strongly? No. We're told he knew who was going to believe and who wasn't. John's warned us not to be surprised either because they were there for the entertainment. They were there for the miracles. They had a good feed. They wanted some more. And when they heard the teaching of Jesus, when they saw that following Jesus was about eternal life and that they would have to have their whole lives revolve around Jesus rather than have Jesus revolve his life around them, and they weren't just going to get another free meal, <laughs> but instead they'd have to eat his flesh and drink his blood. Well, they weren't too keen on that kind of fanaticism. 
and they left. But not quite all. There was some that remained. You, you don't want to leave too, do you? Jesus asked the twelve. Simon Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. And we don't need more proof. We don't need more signs. You know, we're not like them saying, you know, gives another one. You see, Peter and the others saw not just the food and, and not just the metaphors, but they, they knew these were words of eternal life. They saw the real life, everlasting life, truly lay in Jesus and his words. And there was nowhere else to go. There is nowhere else to go. There is no one else who can deliver, though they might say they can. There is nowhere else to go. And so there you have it, from a massive crowd of followers to just a handful in a few short minutes. And even one of the ones who's left is going to betray him. Well, what do you make of it? Why would they just not accept his words? What was so difficult that they just wouldn't go on with him? And how do you go with those words? Because I take it, like my friend of the previous church, like the rich young ruler, what Jesus is doing is identifying their real idols. He's putting his finger on the thing that is in opposition to God and he's challenging them and people don't like being challenged on their gods. What are the, I think there's four key issues that we have to grapple with here. The first issue is the simple one, cannibalism. You know, who's for that? Uh, how can this man give us his flesh to eat, they grumble in verse 52. They're, they're rightly horrified by the idea of having to eat Jesus' flesh and drink his blood. It's disgusting. And if, if Jesus were being literal, it would be disgusting. But it's obvious that Jesus isn't really offering his arm to munch on. Come on, guys, have a chew, right? <laughs> it's a metaphor of your need for him and of the not just the satisfaction that you can have in him, but the eternal life you can have. To eat and drink him, you compare the verses like 40 and 47 with uh, 52 and 53. Um, it, to, it's a metaphor. He says, you know, you believe in me and you come to me and I'll raise you up. You eat of me and drink of me, I'll raise you up. It's, it's synonymous. To eat and drink him is to believe and to come to him. And you can see it clearest in verse 53. This, is my, this bread is my flesh which I give for the life of the world. He's talking about the fact that he's going to die for this world. That is why he has come, to pay for the sins of the world, to be like the snake lifted up on the pole in chapter 3, to bring streams of living water in chapter 4, to, to make people children of God, not born of natural descent or human will or a father's decision, but, but by God. <laughs> Chapter 1. That's the first issue, the cannibalism. It's, it's not, he's not talking about communion. It's not, you know, uh, anything about that. He's pointing to his death on the cross that you have to come to and you have to receive and you're going to have to trust him. The second issue, the deity of Jesus. Is Jesus really from God that he can make these kind of claims? It, did he really come down from heaven? And many today have exactly the same issue. They, they just really can't accept that Jesus is superhuman, that he's supernatural, that he's God become man. 
Oh, he's a great teacher. Some say the best. He, he said some incredible stuff. You know, the golden rule. You know, that's that's pretty cool. Although I can't remember what it is, but, you know. <laughs> um, don't do to others what you don't want them to do to you, something like that. That's not what Jesus said. Do to others what you want them to do to you. But anyway, great spiritual guide. But today's rejection is a little bit different from the rejection here in John 6 because the crowds there saw the miracles and they believed. But today's rejection doesn't even believe Jesus did the things that he's supposed to have done. Today's issue is much more the first half of chapter 6 than the second half. And therefore, what do you do with passages like this? You either reject them completely out of hand or you change them. If you're an anti-Christian atheist, then you reject them out of hand. You dismiss the miracles. Though really there is no rational reason to do that. Okay, It is just blind prejudice based on your assumptions that miracles can't happen. I assume miracles can't happen. I read a story where a miracle happens and therefore it didn't happen. Right? That's not reading the evidence. That's not looking at history honestly. It's just prejudice. Especially when the people who rejected Jesus here could see he was doing what he did. They believed the things happened. That's the, the anti-Christian atheist. What about the Christian atheist? It seems like a contradiction in terms. But there are many practical examples around. And the church is full of them. Not this church, hopefully, but <laughs> at large. The, the, the Christian atheist who, who, who says, well, hang on, we know these things don't happen, but, but we've just got to interpret the metaphor that's behind them. You know what actually happened when they were out there on the banks of the thing? Everyone really had their lunch with them. They just had it all tucked up under their shirts. And you know what? You know, kind of thing. And uh, Jesus is pointing out their lack of generosity because they think, you know, if I pull my food out, someone's going to mob me because I'm not sure the guy next to me has got some food. And yet this little boy comes out. He says, here's my lunch, sir. Jesus says, look at this example, everyone. And uh, they all go, wow, wow. It's a, it's a demonstration of the victory of love in community living that Jesus is proving. But that is not what happened. <laughs> No one was going to declare him to be the prophet and make him king just because he convinced them to eat the food that they'd already brought with them. No, he did the miracle. But they still would not accept who he was because they didn't understand. They wanted him as king, but only as a king they could understand, a king they could push around into doing what they wanted to do, do things their way. But Jesus is insistent, I have come from heaven, I'm sent by the Father, I've seen the Father, I've been with the Father, I've come down from heaven, I've come to do the Father's will, I'm the one who comes from God and I'm the one that gives the life that the Father has to give. In fact, I give you eternal life. The third issue, and perhaps this is a hard one for you to swallow, that no one can come to Jesus unless God draws them there. Then you can't just go, you know what, I want to be a Christian today and that's all good. God has to have done something in you first. It's perfectly clear that's what Jesus is teaching, 637. All that the Father gives me will come to me and whoever comes to me I'll never drive away. Or 639, and this is the will of him who sent me that I shall lose none of them he's given me but raise them up at the last day. Or 644, no one can come to me unless the Father draws him. You, you can't come unless the Father draws you. 
Yes, we have decisions to make. Yes, our choices have consequences for which we bear responsibility. Jesus says that too all the way through. So example, verse 27, do not work for food that spoils, but for work for food that endures. He's calling upon you to work for something, to do something. And as you go through the chapter, you have to look, you have to learn, you have to believe, you have to come, you have to work. But you don't have that choice in such a way where you can stand in sovereignty over God and eternity is based on whatever you decide is going to happen. And you can't come, you don't come because God does not draw you. You've got to understand God's sovereignty and and that is blowing their minds out of the water and it is a mighty affront to human pride. It's an affront to my pride. I cannot save myself. I cannot please God except that he wills it. See, it's all of grace, therefore. It's all the mercy of God. I can't save myself and you can't save yourself. God doesn't have to do anything to keep you away from Jesus. You can do that all your own. Anyone can get themselves to hell. But to turn back and come to Jesus requires the intervention of God in history, on the cross, and in your life by his Spirit to change your heart so that you might understand and believe. I mean, why would you bother praying for people to become Christians unless it's God that's the one that changes them? And it is God that's the one that changes you. If people can just choose it, don't bother praying to God about it. He can't do anything. He's just going, oh, I hope maybe they'll see the advertising and go, woohoo. <laughs> God has to intervene. That is how wicked and broken and foolish we are, that we cannot do anything other than receive Jesus, and God has to enable us to do that. And so the final question we all have to answer, that we're all confronted with in this chapter is, for what food do you and I labour? What are you living for? Who are you living for? Is it God and the gospel? Is it Jesus? Or is it something else? Is it your kids? I'm not going to love anyone more than Jesus. Sorry, I'm not going to love my kids take first place in my life. They're my idol. I'd rather go to hell than believe Jesus on that one. Or the man with the money. Ah, oh, man, if eternal life means giving up my stuff, well, I'm going to hang on to my stuff. <laughs> How dumb is that? <laughs> what food do you and I labour for? For uni and school and work and retirement and family and society? It's all full of the food of this world. The food of possessions and materialism the aspirational food of health and youth and the elixir of life, the food of great experiences. It's all food that never satisfies. It never satisfies. You will never have enough of it and you will die. No matter how much you have, you will want more. Or do we labour for the true food, the eternal food? For the way to labour for that is to believe in God's gift of eternal life. Verse 29, the work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. There is nowhere else to go other than him. 
For he alone has the words of eternal life. He alone is the giver of life. He alone is the saviour. He alone is what life is all about. The work of God is this, to believe in the one he has sent. Father, these are hard words, confronting words that the people then didn't want to hear, that perhaps we don't want to hear, that I'm sure many in the community don't want to hear. And yet Jesus is insistent that for, to have life we've got to come to him. We've got to eat from the true bread of heaven. That he is God and that he is the only way back and that life's about him. And so, Father, help us to not be those who reject your word. Please change our hearts. Draw us to Jesus that we might understand and we might believe that we might do your work to believe in the one you have sent. And we pray that by your spirit you would be moving amongst the hearts and the minds of our community, our families, our neighbours. Father, it is only by your work that people can be saved. And so we pray as we go with your gospel, doing your work, that you would be changing hearts and drawing people to Jesus. We thank you for those who've come over the last few months to, to tons of different things, who've heard the gospel. We pray, please, that you would do your work and you would save them. And we pray for many more to come to be part of your kingdom, but it's only your work that can do that. Please draw them in. In Jesus' name, amen.